If you like fast-paced adventure stories, colorful characters, and some really weird plots, then I've got just a story for you. Kana Cold is a brand new urban fantasy series written by yours truly, author Casey Hunter. And it follows the adventures of a spitfire who dropped out of Harvard to start a paranormal investigation company. The first year or so of cases for Kana were mostly hoaxes. Fake light shows, people lying about seeing ghosts, squeaky pipes in the attic, all of those things that you see on those fake paranormal shows on television. But all of that changed when she met the McNeils and their daughter, Melody. You see, Melody was plagued by a nasty demon from Eastern mythology known as a Shinigami. Ever since that case, Kana's world has been opened up to the truly wild, scary, and insane universe of the real paranormal underground. You can get a free copy of the story Kana Cold, Case of the Shinigami, by going to www.aoestudios.com and signing up for a free book. No purchase necessary. Just go to the website www.aoestudios.com and get all the information and start the series today. The first novel in the series is already available. It's titled The Reaping of the Black Grimoires, novel number one. It's on Kindle and subsequent stories will be coming every two to three months. And if you're in Kindle Unlimited, you can, of course, read for free as the entire Kana Cold series will be available for KU subscribers. Again, go to www.aoestudios.com right now and sign up for your free copy and enjoy the wacky, dark, and sometimes humorous world of Kana Cold. everybody welcome back to the wonderfully weird podcast episode number two yes we're gonna get to uh a very weird and interesting story uh if you know the title of this episode it is the girl with the backwards heart <laughs> it's gonna be a a pretty cool interview uh but i did want to get on to some other things this week uh as far as what's going on with me and things in the world and keep it kind of topical so here in baltimore there's this huge thing going on right now with our mayor the mayor of baltimore city not my mayor i don't live in a city but um the mayor of baltimore city getting raided uh this whole controversy about controversy about her books and this book scandal she's got going on and recently in the baltimore sun <laughs> oh god they never cease to want to point some blame at somebody this is part of what's wrong with the with the freaking media these days anyway but there's a Baltimore Sun article, and I gotta pull up the title here because this is just this is always just funny to me, especially to all of us self-publishers. How the rise of the self-publishing industry contributed to the problems for Baltimore's mayor. Yes, this yes, the democratization of being able to tell stories is contributing to the problems of Baltimore's mayor. What kind of garbage is this? Now, look, as part of the indie author, self-publishing, whatever you want to call us community, we get a lot of crap. And the article does bring up some good points. It kind of goes into a little bit of an explanation about self-publishing. It's a little uh, kind of, un uh, it's from somebody who really doesn't understand it too much. They understand enough of it to blame it, but they don't really understand enough of it. One of the things that they write, yeah, is there is true that there are there's a lot of crap out there because you've opened it up to democratization. It's, but... People acting like this is some big, oh my God, look at what's going on. Oh no, this is why we need the gatekeepers. No, it's the same, this is the same stuff when we had the printing press, when the written word was not just limited to uh, the the elites and, and the priest class and the, the nobles and stuff. And the printing press came out and, oh no, the printing press, look what's gonna happen. Da -da 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 -da. And it's the same thing with the internet. The same thing now with self-publishing. It's the same thing. Anytime you open up stuff to uh, to the populace, people get upset. But th they have rightful criticisms, though, because when you do that, as with the printing press and now with the Internet and self-publishing, you're going to have a lot of garbage put out there because you're going to have people who aren't 
really good at what they do and they're not really into there's a lot of people in the self-publishing industry that are in it just to make money they're not people who really like writing or really like telling stories they just go oh i can do this and stay at home and make money and that's what yeah you have people that get into it you have people that really don't there's still a lot of them that really don't try to hone their craft um my or and as far as this whole thing with the the mayor of baltimore i mean look but blaming self-publishing or saying it contributes to her nonsense is absolutely just ridiculous. Uh, Baltimore City has been corrupt for a long time, from the mayor's office to the city hall, to student, to the um, city council, to a lot of other aspects. I'm going to be careful what I say here as far as corruption, but there's a lot of corruption. A bit, and this is based on me knowing quite a few people who've worked in the city government, who've worked in the police department, who've worked in uh, the school systems, which are ridiculously, disgustingly, just embarrassingly, embarrassingly corrupt. And when, but, you know, this comes up all the time and then you'll see something like this in the Baltimore Sun and somebody's going to talk about the self the self-publishing industry contributing to the problems for Baltimore's mayor. Um, I'm going to be nice enough not to tell the author of this quote unquote article to kiss my ass, <laughs> but, um, there are quite a few talented self-publishers and I've talked about this before and I talked about this in the last podcast, the difference between just a random person who just throws up whatever on Amazon and then the people who really do work hard and hire professional editors, because that was one thing that they missed, they got wrong in this, uh, article that there aren't professional editors and stuff in there. No, you hire professional editors. You hire professional book cover artists. You hire copywriters. You have teams of people, your art team and your beta team that read your book before you publish it. That's up to the person who's publishing the book. That's up to that author. But uh, yeah, it's not all, hey, just anybody just throws anything up there. We've we've gotten way so far from that nowadays. It's it's really kind of sick to see. It's, it's, it's sickening to me because it's just another one of these mischaracterizations. Uh, but I've been used to that my whole life. You know, I was in the rave scene back in the 90s when people mischaracterized that and I was in it. And that was really the first time that I saw that this was a thing that people go in, in the, the main media and mischaracterize things that I was in. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what it is. That was the first time I learned what was way back in the nineties, not to trust the media because they don't know half the time what they're talking about. And they're just trying to do hit pieces to get views and people to read stuff. And, and also sometimes they just don't know what the hell they're talking about. So, um, or they have a bias, a slant towards it. Uh, other things going on. Uh, as far as me personally, I'm trying to desperately finish wrapping up the second full novel in the Connor Cole series. Speaking of self-publishing. Uh, so I'm getting to that this week. It's a, it's a slog. There's some really crazy stuff going on at the end of this book that I really have to make sure it all lines up. Uh, other news, of course, Avengers Endgame came out this past week. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. It is a, what Marvel has done by being able to have an 11 year, 22 movie saga that has never been done before where all these stories are interconnected for the most part. Uh, and for, and they did a pretty good job of wrapping it all up at the final, uh, the final part of this era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because they're going to continue to make movies um, going into the future. But this whole little arc for them, or little, should I say, this huge arc for them has concluded now with the Endgame movie, which I thought was just fascinating. They tied up a lot of things. Um, there's some, there's some issues that once you think about it for a couple minutes, they're like, wait a minute, how does that work out? Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, they're going to, you know, that's the writing team thing. And that's the thing is any writer, any creator knows that, that they're, when you deal with that many characters and that many subplots and that many storylines and that many things that you need to tie up, there's going to be some things that just don't fit. So, um, yeah, I suggest seeing it. If you're a person who likes to see it, uh, I also suggest not spoiling it for people and not asking people spoiler questions about it. Uh, I'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when um, after the movie's been out for a while and people have had a chance to see it because I have I have some very interesting stories about numerous people you know attempting to spoil the movie for me and it was just annoying. People still going on about Trump and and, and the whole Russia thing now. That's other weird stuff that's going on and just the, the weirdness with Trump is the fact that he it, they've called him the Teflon Don and Donald as in Donald. He, 
dude, nothing sticks to this dude. Um, if there's anything, it's just, it's a fascinating thing, completely separating emotion and political leanings away from it. It is fascinating to look at this guy. There's a, there's a um, documentary about him on Netflix that I've been watching. And it is a slanted documentary. You can tell by the very first shot in it, the people that are making it are not, it's, it's a little bit of a hit piece on Donald Trump. So it's not really a fair representation of the guy. But just seeing some, if you can parse out the factual stuff in the documentary, it's very fascinating to see um, just how this guy just always seems to float up to the top, no matter what. And it's just, it's it's a weird, it's a weird story, his story. Um, I think, you know, years and years from now, you know, generations from now, people are going to look back at that guy's story and be like, it's, it's a fascinating thing, just how somebody who shouldn't have what he has and shouldn't be where he is because of all uh, conventional wisdom, but he does. And uh, it's just weird. Now, out of the objective realm into the, sub <laughs> the subjective start, um, man, this whole Russia investigation thing and all that craziness is just, you know, we all know he did something, but it's not criminal. And I think that's the thing that irritates a lot of people who are who want to take him down? So now I've seen articles that say he just he should just resign. Why? Why? Why would he resign? He he weathered the storm of what you guys threw at him for two years. He's not going to resign. I am not. And good look, I am not a fan of Trump. I kind of become indifferent to him because I'm just like, eh, I mean, what what? <clears throat> Vote again in the next election. But then the Democrats, they're not giving me anybody. I'm really like rah rah about Bernie's back in it. Joe Biden just announced he was oh great. Well, you know. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, you know, Cory Booker was the one I was kind of hoping for the most. He seemed like the the most rational of the lot, but I, I don't know. I think it's going to be another, another crap show of nonsense come 2020. So I'm not looking forward to the next election cycle at all. Uh, so anyway, so enough of the worldwide weird stuff. Let's get to our episode today. So the interview today, we're talking with Marion Bennett, uh, who has a very interesting story uh, the girl with the backwards heart. And um, she's a friend of mine. Uh, I've known her for quite some time. And um, I, it was, I'm kind of personally involved in this because uh, the day that she had her issues, uh, I was around and there and very concerned and worried about what was going on. Um, I've been friends with her and her husband for a long time. And I uh, kind of saw from... From a outside perspective, but also knowing a little bit more, uh, obviously because I'm friends with them, just kind of the toll it kind of took on them, and the whole story that uh, involved it. It's kind of it's a little hard to talk about because it's um, it was the first time I've ever experienced anything like that from anybody I knew, and it was just you know lots of worrying for a long time. But let's get to the interview. I think you'll find it a very interesting interview. Again, it's a very different story. It's not a common story at all. So let's get to the interview with the girl with the backwards heart. Marion Bennett here on the Wonderfully Weird Podcast. Okay, so we are starting off our first interview on the Wonderfully Weird with Marion Bennett. How are you doing, Marion? I am great. How are you? I am fantastic. Not as fantastic as your hair. Of course, Thank listeners, you. listeners must understand first and foremost that <laughs> Marion's hair is something of legend. <laughs> it, uh, I, I believe your husband calls it the Darth Vader helmet. Only since I got my hair cut this way. Oh, that, okay. Yeah. Is that an accurate representation of your hair? I don't know. I can't oh. see behind me. You can't. <laughs> I'm sure that he can and has many times in the past, but that is not the kind of podcast we are running today, Marion Bennett. Uh, but uh, part of the wonderfully weird is that we're trying to talk to real, pe real people in an unreal world and who have some wonderfully weird things that happen to them. And as the title of this episode, you will know, Marion is the the woman with the backwards heart. So not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. So uh, for the people who don't know, um, so a long time, well, not a long time ago, it was what? What's it been about? A, ten months. Ten months, almost a year. Mm -hmm. So about a year ago, uh, Marion had uh, heart transplant surgery. Uh, obviously successful because we wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't. Um, but it's, it's been a thing that's been ongoing for a long time. And, um, her story is a little bit unique because it, um, first off, you're, you're young to be having, to have had heart transplant surgery, relatively speaking, relatively right. speaking. 
and uh, the whole process with that. But the, the first unique thing, walk us back through the backwards heart thing, because that's something. Uh, now I know, now I know some people may say you know certain things, but I want you to talk to us about uh, the story behind your backwards heart. When, when did you find out that? Uh, you had a backwards heart, quote unquote. Actually, first explain what that means by backwards heart, I guess. Well, in my case, the backwards heart was um, transposition of the great arteries. So your pulmonary artery and your aorta are doing each other's jobs. Okay. So I was born with this, and my my family knew about it from the day I was born. So. Okay. So, and... and what time, like, how old were you when you kind of realized that, you know, this was something something a little bit different? That Because uh, you said your family always knew. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you as a kid, if you're running around, you're playing, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a backup. Whatever. You know, <laughs> you have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Uh, at what point did you realize that that was, you know, not, you know, something not only different, but something that eventually would have to be taken care of? Well, I started going to the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. Mm. Um, and I only went there because my, my aunt uh, worked there. So I started going there at the age of eight. So up until 18, I went there once a year for oh, wow. a checkup. So you were really young mm-hmm. when it started. Okay. Yep. Um, I was actually very lucky because most children that are born with TGA seem to have to have a, um, they call it arterial switch. Mm-hmm. It used to be called a mustard procedure. And I never had to have that. So I never had to have surgery. My heart was congenitally corrected, mm-hmm. which just meant I was able to, um, my body was able to pump oxygen through like a normal person. Okay. Which you are a normal person, I think. Mm. Somewhat. Well, some people would say that. Well, some, some people would say that. <laughs> some some may disagree, but you right. know. So you're eight years old and you're, mm-hmm. you're going, so what's, what's going through your mind at eight? going through all of this stuff and, and see, having all these doctor visits and everything else? For me, I think I just like the attention. And oh. I, and I like <laughs> the trips to Pittsburgh and seeing my aunt. So. Oh, okay. No. I mean, to me, it wasn't... I wasn't like, oh, I'm a sick person. No. Yeah. So you just get to go on fun-filled trips to... Yeah. To, okay. Yeah. So uh, at any point in... Before you realized that you had to get... Uh, heart surgery did you was there any points along since you were eight up until the surgery that you kind of went you know ooh, you know maybe i should <laughs> maybe something should happen here because this is uh, I'm a little lightheaded or something well i well i would get lightheaded a lot I, my blood pressure would just mm-hmm. drop but <clears throat> it wasn't anything that bad so when i was 22 i was just out of school um you know had my first job my career was starting and I just became really sick mm. and you know I went to the you know those um, I don't want to say the name of the place but one of those you know clinics that you just go to right and they said oh you have bronchitis bronchitis it sounded like bronchitis like yeah. some of my symptoms were very similar but I was constantly cold constantly nauseous um, I was getting what I thought was fat mm. my, my boss actually thought I was pregnant which oh. scared the heck out of me. <laughs> I was 22. I wasn't married. I was like, oh, no, that's not going to work. Now, was there actual potential for you to be pregnant at the time? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I was with my current husband. Yeah. And so finally, I I had been out of work for over a week. or I'm sorry, over a month and just feeling terrible. So I called my, my parents and I said, can I see your doctor? Because down here, they don't seem to know what they're doing. Mm. <laughs> so I... Went with her to her doctor, and the minute he looked at me, he said, be prepared to be in the hospital for a while. Mm. He knew right away what it was. And it was heart failure, so. So, let me get this straight. So, <laughs> the first diagnosis for heart failure was bronchitis. Yes. This The second prognosis. And they gave me, and they gave me that amazing um, cough syrup with codeine. Ooh. Co- oh, I was living on that stuff. I would take it 
and go to sleep for the day, take it, go back to sleep. It was wonderful. Okay, so on top of that, they made you a drug addict. So that's great. So- well, no, imagine <laughs> imagine this this drug with a bad heart. Oh, not good. Yeah, that's not... So they, they diagnosis of bronchitis give you some sort of hyperactive cough syrup uh, uh, drug... Oh, not hyperactive. Or, or depressant, actually, sorry. Yeah. Hyperdepressant cough yes. syrup drug <laughs> that you are taking on a daily basis and knocking yourself out, which, of course, is not going to help the situation. And then the second prognosis is that you're pregnant, and this is all... You're not instilling a lot of confidence in me right now in the diagnosis... <laughs> A certain... That's because I didn't go to a reputable place. Ah, so I you, went to one of those... You went to... Minute clinic type who's, places. Who's the guy on uh, The Simpsons? Uh, hey, everybody! This doctor, what's his face? Whatever that doctor oh, is know. on The Simpsons. I haven't seen The Simpsons in a very long time. I don't think anybody's seen The Simpsons. They're so safe now. It's 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 not a reference Simpsons. It's very, very tame. And, and they got rid of Hapu, so, you know, because we couldn't mm. have Indians on there. So. <laughs> Don't get me started on that topic. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that later. But <laughs> so you, so after all these bad diagnoses, so you get the correct diagnosis. So how long mm-hmm. did you have to stay in the in the hospital? After I this? was in the hospital in Pennsylvania, because um, that's where my family lives, and I was there for two weeks. They were draining fluid and you know just trying to get the heart to be a little stronger. Mm-hmm. So in the midst of that, I had a stroke, oh. and. So I recovered from that very, very well, thank goodness. But since I had the stroke, they wanted to send me to Johns Hopkins, which is where I lived anyway. So I was excited to be going back home, in quotations. Right, home. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I spent another two weeks at Hopkins. And when I was first there, this doctor comes in. His name's um, Edward Casper. And he introduced himself as... I think he said he was a uh, chief of heart transplant or something. And I said, well, I'm not having one of those, so you can leave. <laughs> I'm glad you diagnosed yourself. I, I told him, I was like, you can leave. I'm not having one of those. But it, I find out now from him that I originally was sent to Hopkins because they thought I needed a heart transplant immediately. Oh, then. So that's, this is when you were 22. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't have insurance. Oh. Yeah. I was like working as an independent contractor, you know. I, yeah. And... Thank God I didn't have a heart transplant then. <laughs> yeah, you'd probably still be paying for it now. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so you get through this. You get through uh, this crazy period. So was there a period of time where it kind of was okay? Or has this just been up and down since you were 22 up until... Oh, no. From 22 till 35, 36, I... You just age yourself on... <laughs> I'm 39 and I'm proud of it. <laughs> I look darn good for almost 40. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, up until about 35, 36, I really wasn't that healthy because now I look back at photos and I can see where I was retaining too much fluid here mm. and there. But overall, I felt fine. And every appointment I went to was, everything looks good. Oh. So, when did it get to the point and. and... You know, you can talk about as much of this as you want to, and of course, obviously, as much as you don't want to. So, what was the 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 catalyst that really said, "Okay, now you've been dealing with this for since you were eight, actually before that, uh, you've had all these different uh, hiccups and setbacks and and hospital stays and everything else." What was the incident that said, "Okay, now this actually has to be dealt with"? Uh, with the the and was it was it so much because you said earlier that the heart was doing what it was supposed to be doing per se, but right. but was the is it that the heart was backwards that necessitated the transplant? Well, it definitely weakens your heart over the years okay. because the weaker side of your heart, I wouldn't say it's actually a weaker side, but the pulmonary artery only you know sends blood to and from your lungs. Okay, so my aorta was doing that. And my pulmonary artery was pumping to the whole body. So that'll wear it out really fast. All right. But to answer your question, the moment that we were like, oh, as, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to curse on your podcast. Well, you can because it's, it's, it's mature rated. Okay, good. So, oh, shit. <laughs> I <laughs> need to take care of this. Was And you were around. Yes, I was. Yeah, I mean, we're good friends and you were around. Uh, I went into cardiac arrest. Right here, where we're sitting. Oh, great. So I, I am now sitting in the scene of a crime. That's it. That's, it wasn't a crime. Well, that's what I was wondering about where it happened. Happened right here. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, but, yeah, that was a weird day. Yeah, so luckily my husband, who is in law enforcement, he knows CPR. Mm-hmm. He's never had to use it until that Until then, yeah. So he, he helped bring me back. The paramedics come. You know, there's police here. Everything. It's crazy. And I go off to the hospital. Okay, so that being the overly dramatic <laughs> event that necessitated that you needed the transplant... Up until that point, have there has it been increasing? Like, have you been having increasing dizzy spells or anything like that? Did you yeah. did you kind of sense that that was coming, or is this just just like out of the blue? Out of the blue, out of nowhere. Just oh wow! Bam! Wow! So you've just been living with it, and then all of a sudden it's just ouch. Yeah. Yeah. So you get so you get there. Did they, did they take you to Hopkins or mm-hmm. uh, first oh, yeah. way? So well, when my, you, my whole cardiac history is there. So. Okay. So when you got to Hopkins and after you know you regain because you were obviously unconscious. So when you regain consciousness and you know you, you're you're sitting in a hospital. I mean, just tell me what you were thinking when you woke up. Did you even know what was going on or what had happened? Apparently, I did not know because uh, my girlfriend Colleen uh, had come and she rode in the ambulance with me mm-hmm. and. Every time I would, it seemed like I woke up and I was like, what happened? And she would explain it to me. And then two minutes later, I'd be like, what happened? And that's pretty common for, you know, blood loss to the brain. So (laughs) that continued the whole way there. Wow. So I don't remember any of that, but that's what she told me. Wow. So it's just like a short-term memory. That's, that's gotta be insane. Cause like all these people are telling you what's going on Mm -hmm. and you were conscious and you kept you were cognitive of what was happening, but you weren't. Right. And you, now you don't remember any of these things because it's like you're lucid in and out, in and out, in and mm-hmm. out. Yep. Um, so once you get to the hospital and everything, they, they t- you know, obviously you got the machines and the doctors and the nurses and people panicking and everything else. So um, w- what was the initial response or what, what did they tell you at first after all this? I remember... A lot of pain on my chest because my husband had done the CPR and he always told me that if you don't break ribs when you're doing CPR, you're probably not doing it right. Mm. So I was telling the nurse he didn't do it right because I didn't have any broken ribs. So, so your husband was intentionally trying to break your ribs. I want this to be known on the record. <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently he was being very, he was trying to be as careful as possible. Right. But what he did worked. So you don't have to break ribs to save someone's life. True. PSA for today. Yes, that is. That, <laughs> take that away, folks. Uh, when you are saving people's lives, you don't have to break them. Yes. I think that was Please the, don't uh, break them. Please don't break them. Or try not to break <laughs> them. But no, that's, that's what I mainly remember. And I was in the hospital for a week. And most of those days, I was just up walking around, hanging out at the nurse's station, getting my own drinks, getting my own food. So I felt great. I was doing fine. Yeah, so this is something that I did notice at the time. So while everybody else is kind of losing their minds and panicking and stressing out, you're just, okay, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. let's go do this. And so what what is that in you specifically that you think while, I mean, because this is a pretty serious thing, you know, this is your heart that is backwards and you have passed out <laughs> and, you know, you've, you've had these and issues stopped. and your heart stopped. And, you know, you know, knocking on heaven's door, you know, is, is pretty much the, the, the song of the day with that. So, you know, you know, this is fairly serious stuff. So how do you remain calm? Because everybody else, you know, your family, your friends, the doctors, even to some extent are, are, you know, and and we should talk about this at, at one point about how enamored the doctors were with your heart condition and that it's, oh my goodness, this is so unique. Yeah. But how? But first, how do you, how, how? Why do you think that you were so calm when everybody else was was panicking all the time? I don't know. I think I just always, I always have tried to be a positive person because I, I believe that like versus like so or attracts like. So mm-hmm. if I'm positive and you know happy, and then you know good things happen, and it has. It mm-hmm. works for me. Okay, well, because it's. I mean that is unu- that is unusual because yeah. it is unusual for people not to, uh, you know, life and death situations to not you know get morbid and I mean and you know constantly thinking about you know dying and what's going to happen and what was me and all this other stuff. So uh, that's a tremendously is another reason why this is such a unique conversation because that is 
not what I would expect, or I think most people would not expect you to be that uh, optimistic and probably the most optimistic of anybody involved in the situation. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so we did, I did mention that the doctors thought your, your condition was unique and uh, there was... A, I think you were saying at one point in time that, you, you know, if things did go for the worst, you were going to have your body. Uh, oh, plastinated. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us, why were the doctors so fascinated about your heart condition? Well, because mainly that it, I did not require any surgery before. And, you know, to be as healthy as long as I had been with a congenitally corrected transposition is kind of rare. Okay. So I, what is this? What were you saying? You, you were going to have your body uh, donated? <laughs> what, what is this procedure you were no, talking there's about? There's this procedure called plastination, and they have they, they have exhibits that go around. So mm-hmm. there's one called Body Worlds, and then there's one called um, Bodies the Exhibition. Bodies the Exhibition. Mm-hmm. So what, what does that actually look like? I'm not sure. They somehow inject silicone into every tiny cell and basically preserve different organs or sometimes an entire body. Oh, so you could have been on display at the National Museum of something. Yeah, that would have been really cool. I mean, I had I had back surgery as a kid, so I have the bars in the back. Oh, okay. And then the transposed heart. And at the end of that stay at the hospital, they put a trans a, um, a pacemaker defibrillator. Oh, okay. ICD in. So, so I was like, that would be so cool. So if we get the frequency to that, we can actually page you um, through your heart if we wanted to. Probably. Yeah. I mean, you're probably good at. Well, you can find out the sig- that kind of. You stuff can figure out. out the signal and then just send it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so this is going on, and you've you you. You come out of the hospital with this, and then there's a certain finite amount of time. Um, and th- this is a little bit about healthcare, and because we're obviously in the United States, and mm-hmm. there's some of the issues that you know they go around and you hear about them in the news. But until you know, every, the, the old saying is everything is a cliche until it happens to you. So you know the, the cliches of oh, you know, U.S. medicine and insurance and everything else. So mm-hmm. how was that dealing with that now that it was a re- real thing in life that you know you've you've you got this diagnosis, you know you're going to need a heart transplant, not a cheap thing to have done, mm-hmm. and also hard to get approved for it. So during and how long did you have to wait between the diagnosis until, until you actually got your heart? How long was the time? The diagnosis of... The diagnosis that you needed a heart transplant until you actually were able to get one. Oh, well, that yeah, that was a couple of years later. Um, it was a couple of years later. Yes, it was. Wait, it was... at least... It, wait, hold on. So I had... The cardiac arrest was in July. So I got the defibrillator in August. And the funny thing is, in October, we went on this big Mediterranean cruise mm. trip. And we walked like eight miles a day. Nice I walk. didn't have any problem. I was never tired, so hmm. I felt better than ever. Well, that's cool. So, so we did this trip, and then I'm, I think it was the following April. Hmm. So yeah. It's a, so it's about a that year. The, so. That the defibrillator fired. Oh, okay. Oh, that fired. Yeah. Okay. So the defibrillator went off. That's a lovely experience. Mm. I recommend it to everyone. Yes, yeah, so I will page you. I'll, I'll hold off on that paging of the frequency. <laughs> so that went off, and from then on, it was just this was 2017. Mm. So April is 2017. Wow! So that was just a long. So that's, that's a pretty long time, then. Yeah. So, um, but I'll tell you, the minute it goes off, like I was having this really serious arrhythmia, mm-hmm. and you feel horrible. And the second the defibrillator goes off, you're like, whew, I could run a marathon right now. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like being injected with foreign... Yes, I feel good. Yep. Hmm. So, so, so after that, so then you got... So that was April mm-hmm. of 2017. So yes. when you got your heart, when was that? The new heart? Um, May of 2018. So it was a year, a little over a year after mm-hmm. that. So, so around, around June or July of 2017, they... I went through all the testing for transplant. You have to have all these tests done. It's, you know, psychological testing and 
you have to meet with a social worker and financial planning and then all these you know medical tests and then they decide if they're going to list you or not and where they're going to list you depending on how how urgent it is that you get a transplant right so at that time the system was it's it's very different now but when i was in it was um level two yeah you're gonna need one but you're healthy enough to be at home and you know do your normal activities and i was a status two for hmm, not even a year not even a year. Wow. I, st- I stopped working at the end of August. I just could not do it anymore. And I thought I was just going to have the transplant soon and boom, be back to work. Uh-huh. Didn't work that way. No. No. It's not fast like that. No. But you just continue to go downhill and get you know sicker and sicker. And I had to keep going in for um, fluid re- you know, removal. Mm-hmm. So they basically just pump you full of that LASIK and... Mm. And you just pee like crazy. So it sounds like a cocktail, like a, like a binge drink. Yeah, <laughs> just drink this and go to the bathroom a lot. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So they, so the whole thing is that you know, so during this year between the defibrillator, they're just waiting for you to get sick enough. Sick enough, but not too sick. But it's not like too this, sick. Yeah, it's this strange. Line. So it's, I mean, this is like Russian roulette with you know yeah. somebody's somebody's health. It's like we, we well, we know you need it, but. We need you to really be bad. Now, is there a particular reason for that? Or they just, or is it just that, you know, you need to, is there a waiting list that, you you know, your hierarchy of sickness that somebody's sicker than you who's waiting for a heart is mm-hmm. probably going to get first treatment or first preference over someone who's healthier right. like yourself? Well, if I hadn't stopped working and if I hadn't been continuously going to a Hopkins Cause at the Heart Failure Clinic mm-hmm. where you get that good LASIK. Mm-hmm. The, the good stuff. <laughs> the good drugs. Um, if I hadn't been doing all that, then I obviously wouldn't have felt bad enough to mm-hmm. have to go in. But yeah. at that hospital specifically, I don't know how many others are like this. You have to be staying in the hospital with a swan catheter, which is basically a catheter through the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they get all your blood draws and all your medications go in. So you have to have that put in and then at least two um, inotropic drugs running through it. Wow. So when I, one day I just, I knew it was time and I was fighting it. Yeah. I was at the heart failure clinic and nobody can tell me that I have to go. I have to make that decision myself. But everybody was like pushing for, I think it's time. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm like, no, uh-uh. I gotta wash my hair. Well, of course, <laughs> that, everything comes back to the maintenance of your hair. So I came in, I took a shower. I was thinking, okay, I'll wait until Thursday. Mm-hmm. This was a Tuesday. Thursday, I'll go to the hospital. So Tuesday night, you know, I get my shower. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm good right now. And then I had uh, some chest pain. Uh, yeah. So I said, all right, I can't, I can't screw around with this anymore. Right. Hmm. So and how so long? We went in that night. And this is at Hopkins, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in the, you're in the heart. What, what do they call it? The heart transplant ward, or I was in the progressive cardiac care unit. Progressive cardiac care unit. So, and how many people? Because obviously there's others waiting there. How many other people were were in that unit waiting for a heart? Well, when I was living in the PCCU, um, I was there for 35 days, and there were two other people waiting. Mm. So there was a woman that. I still talk with, um, and a man, same thing. Mm-hmm. We're all still close. Nice. So, so is, did you have to wait longer or, I mean, what is the wait times for that? Because it, yeah. I remember there were people coming in and coming out while you were still there. Oh yeah. Um, well not everyone on that floor, everyone on that floor is there for different cardiac reasons, mm-hmm. but, um, I think the gentleman and I were there, he came in the day before me right. and then, she came in probably like a week after I got there. So it all depends on what heart becomes available or whatever organ that you're waiting on. Whatever heart becomes available and it has to match um, you know, blood type and the size has to be the right size. Right. And then they have all these other um, all these other issues which are like 
your do you have antibodies i had no antibodies no um does the heart have you know this virus or this disease and so there's a lot of yeah so i think maybe the tendency to think is that it's a you know it's like getting a you know, some other transplant. We'll just swap this one out for that, but it's not because mm-hmm. you're, you're dealing with your heart. Like you said, there's a myriad of possibilities and things to consider and, yep. you know, blood types. And, and like you said, I think one of the things was uh, the size again, because mm-hmm. of, uh, I think it was an age thing that you needed a younger person or they, why, why did they want a younger person's heart for you? They wanted a younger heart just so I would have, as healthy as possible. Right. I still don't know the age of my donor. Oh, okay. Um, so I do know that it was a man, and his name is Michael. Um, I've received letters from his mother. Mm-hmm. I wrote to her, and I haven't gotten the personal letter back. Right. But since we're in two different states, it actually can take more time. Okay. So it has to go through their Living Legacy type foundation, their mm-hmm. Donate Life. So. Wow. So the day now I, I do remember the day that this all happened in the heart because <laughs> you were the reason it happened. I was the reason it happened because I was there the day before, and I was like, "Look, I'm tired of coming to this hospital. Today is the last day I want to come here, and you're going to be sitting here." And then I left, and then of course the next day I, I found out that you actually were. I was like, "Oh, I didn't mean that quick." But hey, I was fine with that. <laughs> so you, you the surge the heart finally you, they finally found a heart and you know mm-hmm. uh, the heart came through. So uh, take us through like when you when you found out because you're sitting here you've been sitting there for a while mm-hmm. and we're waiting 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 nothing's <laughs> happening some false starts. So when I asked they, the doctors if they forgot if they forgot <laughs> if they yeah forgot about did me. they forget about me you know I need one here. So but you, then one day it's like. You know, it's nothing happening, and then all of a sudden, it's go. So, yeah, when, so take me through when when you found out when they came in and told you that they had a heart and you were going to get the transplant. Yeah. Well, when when you're living there, my my stay was 35 days, and I mean, to me, that felt like an eternity. Mm-hmm. Now I look back and I'm like, oh, thank goodness it was only that. Long. Yeah. But it happened on a Thursday morning, March. Uh, I'm sorry, May 10. Um, my doctor came in by the. The doctor that was, you know, in charge that week, um, he came in by himself really early in the morning. I don't see him until like 10 o'clock normally. Mm -hmm. So he comes in at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, hey, what's up? What are you doing here? (laughs) I didn't even think that it could possibly be. Because about two weeks after I went in there, the surgeon walked in at 9, 10 in the morning. I thought that was my day. Because here the surgeon's walking in. Right. No, he just wanted to check on me. I was like, way to scare me. <laughs> and uh, so when this doctor, Dr. W, I'll call him, he comes in and... Wait, your doctor was a former president, George W. Bush? Yes. No. Uh, I, would have been, I would have been scared. <laughs> Can I say it? I don't know if I should no, say his name. Say it. No, don't say it. So that. it's Dr. W. Um, <laughs> any of my Hopkins transplant friends know who that is. Uh, he, he walks in. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, well... Are you sitting down? I'm like, look at me. I'm sitting down. <laughs> wow. He's funny. So he told me that they have a possible. Okay. Now, when they tell you it's not a definite go, you could be wheeled to the OR. You could be under sedation. And they could say, this one's not going to work. Yeah, that, that would irritate me to yeah. no end. That's why they don't cut you open until everything is right. <laughs> ready to go. So the heart has to... Be exam- the donor's already been tested and examined mm-hmm. um, at their hospital, wherever they were. And I feel like he was probably pretty close because everything seemed to happen very quickly. So uh, the the surgeon goes to see the donor, see the heart. But from what I understood, the heart arrived and that's how oh. the doctor saw it. I, or maybe he went, I don't know. But the, the timing of everything seemed like he was in a local he was probably in a local hospital. Okay. So they told me they were going to come and get me around 1.30 to take me into surgery if everything was okay. Okay. I had just gotten my breakfast when he walked in. No, you can't eat. That's right. Nope. So they took my breakfast away. Aww. I was not happy. You're really looking forward to the hospital food? Yes. <laughs> I got used to it. <laughs> Actually, it's not that bad, to be honest. <laughs> um, but... 
when you don't eat and you're sitting there and I had snacks in the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get hangry. Grumbly tummy. Yes. Yeah, so I got very hangry. So my husband's there with me and, you know, we're calling all the family. We're not telling anybody on Facebook. We're mm-hmm. not calling friends. Oh, except for really close ones. Um, and one thirty comes and goes and I'm waiting and waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the nurses came in and she's like, did you hear? I'm like, hear what? It's a go. I was like, oh, nobody told me. I was like, okay, when, when are they going to take me? So they finally arrived around 4.30. Oh, wow. Yeah. We had just been playing Scrabble all day. <laughs> so they, they come a little bit earlier. You have to get a whole bunch of blood draws. And then 4.30, I'm wheeled out. Mm-hmm. I go right into the OR. The anesthesiologist comes over and introduces himself. He's like, all right, I'm just going to give you something to relax you. I'm like, okay. Bring it on. Bring the drugs. <laughs> More drugs. Thank you. <laughs> And I guess I was, I guess they put me to sleep right then because it was, that was it. That was it. Oh, and then you woke up, you were, oh, it's over. (sighs) Well, you're pretty, some people stay in a coma Mm -hmm. state after the surgery for sometimes up to a week. It just depends on how they're recovering. But me, I just, I woke up, it was, the surgery was from six to eight. Which is very short mm-hmm. for heart transplant, so it's two hours. But again, I never had surgery, so there's no scar tissue to right. deal with. And I woke up. They took the breathing tube out right away. And remember, my social worker came in, and I was like, "Where is you know? Where's my husband?" And she's like, "Oh, he went home." I'm like, "Call him." <laughs> <laughs> She's like, do you want him here? I was like, can he come? Because they always tell you, you have to be so careful about germs or anything, yeah. especially right after the surgery. Your husband's pretty germy too. You know, he, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's pretty, he's pretty germy guy. Oh, <laughs> guy. Uh, so, so she called him and he came right over. But I was in and out, falling asleep, waking up for mm. probably about two days. Oh, yeah. And I remember. I'm trying to get me to drink broth or something. I'm like, oh, no, oh. I don't want it. <laughs> Where's my breakfast from the other day? <laughs> yeah, I want my pancakes. <laughs> but no, you can't eat that for a while. So, mm. so it, it was all successful, and mm-hmm. eventually you came home. And and so, so since then, what has been the major adjustments that you've had to make in in life since then? I mean, regarding, I mean, because obviously there's dietary mm-hmm. things that have to change, but are there any other lifestyle uh, things that you, I mean, I don't expect you to be drink, eating, you know, a plate of, of uh, bacon and drinking 10 shots of Jack Daniels tomorrow, but, you know. I would never have shots of Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> With or without this, no way. Uh, a bacon? I can have bacon. Oh, okay. So what, so what are you, so what are, what, are, what have you changed since? Then. Well, before the surgery, we were extremely careful about sodium. Right. And I still should be, to be honest. We all should we be. We all should be, yeah. Um, everybody should be, especially transplant um, patients, because you don't want your new heart to get clogged up immediately, mm-hmm. obviously. So, <laughs> but I definitely have taken advantage of being able to have sodium. You just have to be careful about how often and how much. Right. And uh, the biggest dietary changes or restrictions are any kind of raw sushi mm-hmm. i haven't even had sushi because it's made next to raw sushi right. they're not gonna sterilize everything for one customer exactly cross-contamination yeah. yes and oysters mm. he got me my husband got me hooked on raw oysters and now i can't have them at all see this is this is again his fault so yes. we're just gonna blame your husband for the entire thing <laughs> By the way, he's in the background somewhere, uh, probably scowling and laughing at us. I think he has his earphones in because he's, uh, he's playing that. He doesn't want to hear that game. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to relive, relive this whole thing because I can tell you what happened. So I, I remember when uh, you had the surgery, and uh, so uh, your husband and I we're, we're all neighbors, so we have the uh, Tim Toolman Taylor yeah, uh, over the fence <laughs> conversations. And uh, he was on the phone in the back, and I was doing some yard work that I'm always doing yard work in the spring. And uh, he, he's on the phone and he's telling me like, okay, she's in. And it, it seemed like a lot. I think your surgery was a lot faster than that because it seemed like it was like a half hour no, later. It was like two hours. Yeah, it was two hours because it seemed really quick because by the time he was out and then I went back in the house and came back out and he was on the phone again. And then he's like, oh, they, the nurse had called him while we were talking. 
So I was like, okay. So he's talking. So I go off and do something so he can have his private conversation. Then I hear him start crying. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh, you didn't make it. And I was like, so, like, how do you, you know, you go up. I'm like, all right, so how do I say anything to him? You know, I don't want to, you know, gosh. guy lost his wife. What am I going to say? He's like, so. Well, how were you, did you get sad? Well, I wanted to, I didn't know. I, I was, yeah, but I was if thinking. I had, but you were thinking, oh, my God, she didn't make it. I mean, why well, didn't you cry? Well, I was thinking about what was going to happen to your hair. <laughs> afterwards where are we going to get a wig made out of your hair and then that whole you know weird museum thing that you wanted to have done to your body uh and who was going to get your your dog so um my dog because because your husband wouldn't keep your dog i would have had to kept jack for i don't think so (laughs) that would have been the one thing left of me for him our our little boy i'm old jack oh i miss miss jack too rest in peace jack but uh, I was just like, I, I don't know what to say. So I just asked him, I was like, so what happened? And then he's like, oh, she's fine. So he was, it was tears of joy, obviously. Yes. So, and I immediately told him, I was like, oh, you, I thought she died the way you were acting. I was like, oh my God. So, so everybody was happy and I, we were all happy and everything. Yeah. And then I was like, but the, the weird thing for, you know, the friends and, you know, in particular is like, okay, so when can we, because you can't go. Oh we, yeah, everybody was like, when can I see you? Like, not for a while. Yeah, you can't, can't be around you for a while. Yeah. Germs and everything else. So. Yeah. Um, but after a while, we all were able to, to check out, and you were back to your normal self, as as abnormal as the normal Marion is, <laughs> and uh, you know, back to your cracking jokes and everything else. So, you know, always cracking jokes at the hospital. Yes, yes, and probably yeah. having all kinds of fun with your um, <clears throat> fellow uh, neighbors there at the at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so now, um, as I know, there was a lot of things that you and your husband were talking about with. Uh, you know, just the community around people with heart conditions mm-hmm. and everything else. So touching that a little bit, like what, what was it that you guys were, were thinking about? You know, what kind of activity are you, are you still having involved with the community? Well, when, it, when you go through something, you realize that, like, I was very lucky. I have a friend from home, um, from Pennsylvania, who had his surgery about two years before I did. And, you know, he he and his wife have been really great in, you know, helping us before the surgery, learning what, you know, what it was all about and that look how great he's doing. And they have a child, so it's not like you can't be around kids. Right. Um, he doesn't have a choice. <laughs> his son's so cute, though. He's a good boy. Um, so this... This couple really helped us out a lot, but he told me he had nobody to talk to about any of this. So he, they had to learn just on their own. They had no community of, of people that went through it. Mm-hmm. So, and the one really good friend that he has from his hospital has not had his transplant. So they, you know, he couldn't have gotten any help from him. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky that I had mine the man that was waiting, he had his the day after me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I just saw him recently. It was so nice to see him. Um, so I joined this Facebook group for transplant patients. And I met a lot of people that way. And I joined it even before the surgery. Mm-hmm. So I was posting my waiting day seven, waiting day eight, you know. Right. And I was posting pictures of myself just because my some of my friends didn't know what to expect and they thought maybe I was like, you know, half, half dead right. in the hospital. So I post those to show my friends and family, look, everything's good. Right. I'm good. I'm just sitting here. So, um, but going through that group and talking with this other, you know, this other couple and, and talking with nurses, I just learned so much more about how important it is to have, people mm-hmm. to be able to mentor you kind of so since then i've had a lot of people come to me at we we have meetings at hopkins um you know people that have had their transplants there and the, uh, i had two or three different people come up to me and say i followed your journey and you know it was so great to see how well you were doing and so that that's really nice and i've been able to help people out who were you know, just beginning their journey and not sure how everything was going to go. Mm-hmm. So I became a Donate Life ambassador, which 
means that I will, I didn't do it this year, obviously flu season, right? but, um, probably in April I'll start. April is donate, you know, donation month. Mm -hmm. So just know that. (laughs) And, um, yeah, this will be out in April when it uh, finally airs. So. Excellent. So yeah. this is you timely. Know, the donation month. Um, sign up to be an organ donor, <laughs> and um, they'll have they'll have fairs and different events that they do. Mm-hmm. So I'll be doing that and trying to educate people on what organ donation is really about because I I didn't even know. Right. There's a lot of people who think that if you're an organ donor, they're not going to try to save you, mm-hmm. and that's not true at all. So is there, are there any, uh, you mentioned a Facebook group, are there any groups or, or websites you want to uh, mention on the air and let people know, uh, since it is April, so it is uh, organ donation yes. time? Well, the group that I belong to, it's only for people that have had a transplant, are waiting, or their caregivers. Yeah, right. So my husband and I both belong to that. Um, Which is probably a good thing because I imagine that some of the people, you know, there will be somebody who will listen to this who might be in the beginning stages of it. And it's probably good to know that there are resources out there exactly available for them. So, you know, you're not alone. So it's just called the Heart Transplant Support Group. Heart Transplant Support Group. Yes. So, and that's on Facebook. So it's a group that you can probably, you know, you'll be able to connect with. 4.5,000, or wait, 4.5K members? Yeah, 4.5,000. Yeah, yeah, okay. I thought there were more people than that on there. 4.5,000. Yeah. And they go on, they ask, they'll ask a question and everybody gives them a response. Wow. So you learn quite a bit. Well, see, there are benefits sometimes to social media because, yes. you know, so, so many, especially today, because there's so much... That it that goes wrong on social media. It's often a place for not really helpful discussion and debates. But every once in a while, there are it does have uh, its merits. It does have good things that can come out of it. So I mean, that's a pretty crazy journey uh, from the time you were a kid all the way up until now being thirty years old. I'm thirty nine. I'm proud of it. Well, I'm still a gentleman, so you're not supposed to, you know, speak of a, <laughs> speak of a lady's uh, age or whatever. But let's talk about your age. Uh, <laughs> n- Nine thousand two hundred and forty-two. Oh, yeah, actually, yes. <laughs> I, I age I age more with every uh, with every year. Hmm. Yes, every every traumatic experience ages me about ten years. Oh, boy. Uh, but um, <laughs> we're writing these books too ages me. <laughs> but, uh, of yeah, late nights, but. It's it's uh it's a curious journey and you know this podcast is about stories but you know because you know I'm a storyteller writer everything else but there are stories in the real world with real people that are you know you can't script them you know mm-hmm. they're in their real life extraordinary stories and they're weird stories and it's uh, good to hear them especially like I said for people who you know may know somebody in the same situation or in the same situ- situation or just might find it fascinating to hear about. You know, a, a woman who had a backwards heart and needed to have heart transplant surgery. It's TGA. TGA. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are people that have all of their organs backwards. Are backwards. Yeah. Like everything is just absolutely flipped, not just. Just one. It's just the whole yeah, interior. Very, yeah. Very interesting. Oh, these, these are, you know, and it's not, I mean, how frequent is that? Is that, I don't know. Or how common is I'm not even sure what it's called. But I met somebody who's, I think her niece has it or something. Oh, wow. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, well, but you're still here and, and you, you now have, uh, are probably going to outlive all the rest of us now since you're the bionic woman. Since you have, <laughs> you can probably conjure lightning and, you know, you got Wolverine, titanium, adamantium, whatever going on oh through you. <laughs> so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if there's anything that you had to say to, you know, anybody who's, uh, who is going through this or, or not even just a heart transplant, but they're going through any kind of, you know, major surgery that's coming up and, you know, freaking them out. Like I said before, you handle it in a way that, um, I think most people would think would be uncommon as far as how calm you were about it and how positive you were about it. So what would you say to anybody who's facing any kind of major life altering surgery like this? Well, the first thing is your attitude is going to determine how you heal. Mm. Um, I've seen many people, they were just miserable constantly. All they did is complain and they're 
you know, their um, healing took a lot longer. The second thing is walk as much as you can before you have any major surgery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you want to be strong. You don't want to lose all your muscle mass. So if you can, get up and move. But that's probably it. Follow your doctor's instructions Mm -hmm. and don't think that you know better. (laughs) So humility, positivity, Mm -hmm. and just being uh, Active. active. Yep. Which is probably good, not only just for going into surgery, it's probably a good thing to do for life in mm-hmm. general. And that's probably a good way to end this podcast is uh, having some inspirational words for, for you know, everybody. So you are an inspiration now, Marion. Oh, to, to... <laughs> I've had a lot of people say that. I'm like, what? I didn't do anything. Yes. But we're... apparently... <laughs> Well, you know, most heroes, what do they say? Most heroes don't know that they're heroes kind of thing. Aww. So, you know, that's that. I would take that as a, a good sign on your part. But so thank you for sharing your story with us. Just this wonderfully weird story of uh, you and your your heart issues. And we're, we're glad to, uh, you're still going to be around and, and still giving us grief oh, yeah. for the next, you know, 70 years. That'd be awesome. Exactly. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> Not a problem. I'll see you later. All right.